today's sutta is quite a unique sutta, quite a unique discourse. It comes to us from the middle-length discourses, Madhya Nikaya, sutta number 47, Vimansaka Sutta. Examination. Investigation. It's a unique sutta because it allows the student to carefully look at the teacher. It gives us the right to do that. And this um, function or, or the allowance, the permission, comes straight from Lord Buddha himself. So you're not going to get any higher authority than that in the Dhamma. Perhaps nowhere in the early schools of religious traditions do we find such a clear and open investigation being encouraged for the student, as is the case generally with Buddhism, the Dhamma. And this sutta, the Vimansaka Sutta, is no exception, because we have a remarkable invitation by the Buddha, the Blessed One himself, to investigate him, the great teacher, and by extension, to go ahead and examine one's own teacher. Who would otherwise often go uninvestigated, unexamined. Um, so it is quite unprecedented and, uh, and a courageous invitation of that because this includes the individual, the seeker, the student, the disciple, and includes it, uh, the person as a crucial element in the discovery that seeks to authenticate the tradition, the teachings through the teacher himself, in this case, Lord Buddha. To my knowledge, there's no other tradition in the world that, that has even something close to this to offer the student that much audacity, that much of a role to play in seeing what's what. And of course, it's not just a teacher. Through the teacher, we're also investigating the teaching we're examining the teaching, the validity of the teaching, and by extension, all those other uh, parts of the teaching or the tradition itself. 
could be the other teachers. Um, we're also examining the behavior of our fellow students within the teaching, within the school. So in a way, Lord Buddha strips away this belief, the role of, you know what, I just have to believe and I'm good to go. Just show me where to sign. That goes out the window because this is a wisdom path. And as far as I'm concerned, this is the wisdom path because of how much of an audacity it has to include you, the student, person, ourselves, in making a decision every single moment of our lives that we're on the path to take charge of what's going on. We're even taught by the Blessed One in this sutta of what it entails, the process of examining or the investigation, um, how it's supposed to be done. Much like the case was with the Kalamas in the Kalama Sutta, where uh, Lord Buddha speaks to the townsfolk of Kalama as to what constitutes a wholesome teaching. What is a true teaching? because they had come asking him uh, because they were confused. They didn't know uh, which tradition, which teaching, because everybody was coming down from the Himalayas saying, I'm the right teacher. This is the right teaching. Follow this if you want to be saved. So, you know, essentially that's what was going on. And they were confused because there had been so many teachers. To their surprise, Lord Buddha confirmed and normalized their confusion by adding the criteria, the list of criteria that clearly delineate for them and to for us and everyone else since then as to what we need to look for in a teaching. And to their surprise, he didn't include himself in a sense that, okay, now it's time for you then to teach me. Based on this data, you have to now um, uh, follow me, not teach me, follow me as your teacher, Lord Buddha. He didn't say that. And they were completely uh, taken by that. And he bring, brought it down to the experiencer of the path of the Dhamma. So that's still, that spirit is still there. But now in this Vimansaka Sutta, we see the target being the teacher. In this case, Lord Buddha himself. Versus the Dhamma, as the case is with the Kalama Sutta. So here we see the very important role the ever necessary role of a personal verification that must be there to validate or invalidate the whole experiencing of the truth that is going on vis-a-vis uh, -vis the teacher, 
In other words, this sacrosanct presence, this untouchable in their sanctity uh, presence is, you know, Lord Buddha is pretty much pulling the rug from under that. Because he's inviting us to look at the behavior of the teacher versus what they teach or how they come across or how influential their influential their their circle is how much renown they might have so the name vimansaka uh, comes from its uh, verb form which is uh, vimansati uh, to investigate, to examine, to inquire. Sometimes that uh, capacity or that right even is taken away from um, a seeker, a student of any tradition, um, including Buddhism, including in the, in the Dhamma, including in Theravada. So simply because we call ourselves Buddhists per se does not necessarily mean that there is the examination or the investigation going on. So um, that's why these series of suttas uh, discussions that we have, exploration series that we have, I find them to be quite helpful to change that and to bring back the relevancy of this, uh, these suttas that Buddha found to be important enough to be part of his uh, lesson plans, shall we say, during those 45 years of teaching. So this sutta is about the, the um, investigator, the inquiring investigator, or vimansaka. Oh, uh, because there is the lack, because we're going to see this again and again, uh, because there is this absence of ability in uh, probing the mind of the teacher with your own mind, meaning telepathy, because most of us don't have that, as the case was uh, at the time of Lord Buddha. Still, there are set of steps, criteria that a student can uh, resort to, uh, steps that are tangible enough, a concrete way of thoroughly examining, in this case, the Blessed One's own declaration that he is a perfectly and fully awakened teacher. So he's putting his own awakening right there <laughs> on the examining table. So that blows me away. And only such a tremendously courageous person could do that. So he's saying, let's talk about this. Okay, here it is. Don't be mesmerized by what you're seeing. So uh, something that needs to be said about examination itself vis-a-vis -vis the sutta when we're talking about investigating or examining, uh, as far as the sutta is concerned, it is not, this examination process uh, is not of an intellectual nature. 
We need to be clear on this. Uh, it's very engaged in, it is empirical in its observation. So we're talking about behavior, which is huge. When we talk about the three trainings, for example, sila, that's number one, it's the behavior. And a few weeks ago, we talked about the mind being number one, mental action being number one, not the last, but number one. So it's not this investigation, this examination process we see in the Vinyansa Kasutta is not intended to, uh, for us to come to some form of a conclusion uh, that demonstrates uh, the level, let's say, of the teacher's intellectual prowess or education or position even in the Sangha. That's not it. We're talking about the character of the teacher in relation to the Dhamma, because they have to be going like this. So this investigation is for the student to find out whether the teacher is morally uh, fit, ethically qualified, compassionate and decent enough of a person. Decent enough of a person, kind who's humble and limitlessly patient to be inspiring for the student. Inspiring enough to relate and connect with the human being standing in front of them. So enough so that the student can become inspired to break the shackles of their hangups all the things that make them complacent, all their fears to come loose, to break free from all those in developing right view, which is so crucial and to get them on the path to awakening. So that's why we're examining the teacher. So without further ado, let's start. I have personally heard this. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the monastery offered by Anathapindika at Jeta's Park in the city of Savati. Then the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus and said, Bhikkhus, yes, Bhante, replied the bhikkhus present. Bhikkhus, the bhikkhu who desires to know and examine someone but who lacks the ability to blend his own mind with another's mind, to clearly observe their inner thoughts, should carefully examine and scrutinize the Tathagata in order to see for himself whether he is perfectly awakened or not. In a world where we have so many um, teachers, an abundance of teachers, where pretty much anyone can call themselves a teacher, uh, examination and proper investigation is then mandatory for us to be knowing for sure that at the very least we're not wasting time listening to this person or that. So 
because the Lord Buddha is mentioning, is giving us this platform by asking us this question, which uh, probably was going on in the minds, taking place in the minds of some of the students, already tells us that even 2,600 years ago, this was a phenomenon that was occurring, even in the Sangha as well as in other traditions, like we saw with Nigantanata Putta a few weeks ago with Upali Sutta, where you have so many followers, so many supporters, but no substance. The teacher is completely flawed, but everybody's just following the blind, following the blind. And that's how we normally have a lot of religious traditions out there. But here it's different. We're being included. Come, come, come test it. After all, there is that qualifier for the Dhamma itself. Come and see for yourself. This is an extension of that. Where the Lord Buddha is getting into specifics. And he's not using some other teacher as an example. He's using himself. He's using himself. So we see that not much has changed then during these 2,600 years with teachers. Um, I know we don't have the Buddha in front of us, but we sure have the Dhamma. And if we recall the statement of Lord Buddha, he says, he who sees the Dhamma sees me. He who sees me sees the Dhamma from the Vakkali Sutta, where he was addressing Vakkali Bhikkhu. And uh, that comes to us from the Sangyutta Nikaya. Vakkali was the one who was mesmerized by uh, Lord Buddha's uh, physique, uh, his, his color of his skin. He was just taken by that. In fact, so much so that he relinquished his household or life, his family, and became a bhikkhu and just kept on sitting there adoring Lord Buddha until Lord Buddha scolds him because he saw that he was not practicing. And he said, what are you looking at? This lump of flesh, what, what, do, you, what do you see? This is, this is just dirt. What are you looking at? Look at the Dhamma, he says. And really shocks the Vakkali to the point where he wants to commit suicide because he feels so, well, Lord Buddha was right and he feels so like poor in his qualities as a student. And then Lord Buddha shows up in front of him and, and encourage him, encourages him and inspires him enough so that eventually he becomes an arahant. So we owe it to ourselves to carefully check and authenticate a teacher. That is a right that every student has. That cannot be taken away from the student and uh, to know whether they're true or false teachers by checking their <laughs> credentials of virtue, if you will, and um, to see if they are driven by fear, for example, if they're driven by greed, by lust, by passions, by uh, desires for fame, um, to look a certain way in front of the masses of students, supporters, we need to check and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, Lord Buddha, as you see, you will see 
in, is in fact encouraging this in the student to keep the Dhamma alive, to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff. Because the methods of um, selection or the sifting are not there in use. They're there as we see in the suttas, but they're not there in practice oftentimes. So in our globalized and urbanized world where the Sangha has grown uh, uh, to be so large around the world, so spread out, we see several Sanghas showing up everywhere, both lay and monastic. And um, they're very much detached from each other and they're functioning pretty much on their own in many places. So they're supported by dayakas or you know, followers or supporters, financial supporters, lay people usually. Um, but their communities are growing. Um, but this becomes a hotbed of different influences where many false teachers appear and um, arising out of nowhere. And people usually don't have the time or the know-how to do much investigation of the teacher. What is a, prop, a proper thing to see? What is not? What is appropriate? What is not? And because everyone's following the herd, they find themselves somewhat of a breakaway entity within the supporters group, and they choose to be quiet as the caravan is hitting, the, getting closer and closer to the abyss. So with the guidelines provided for us here by the Buddha, we can at least have an idea to, you know, to know what to look for in a teacher, uh, be they monastics or lay people. So continuing on, and the bhikkhus responded, Bhante, we are anchored in our learning on the Blessed One himself, for he is our guide and refuge. To this end, we request that the Blessed Lord please clarify the meaning of what he stated, as this would greatly benefit the bhikkhus, who will remember and carry it in their hearts, once having learned it from the Blessed One himself. So they're just asking, what did you mean? So we don't have a wrong impression or understanding of what Lord Buddha was advising us um, about investigation of a teacher. Well then, bhikkhus, listen and pay careful attention to what I shall say. Yes, Lord, replied the bhikkhus. Bhikkhus, when the bhikkhu who desires to know or examine someone closely, but who lacks the ability to blend his own mind with another's mind to clearly observe their inner thoughts, should carefully examine and scrutinize the Tathagata in two ways. That is, by observing him through the eyes and ears. In other words, the bhikkhu scrutinizes to see whether he could see or hear any evidence in the Tathagata's behavior that reveals the presence of any defilements within him. And after having examined the Tathagata thus, the bhikkhu reaches the conclusion there are no defilements found within the Tathagata that can be scrutinized or observed, whether through the eyes or ears. 
obviously when the bhikkhu is unable to see with his own mind, the Buddha's mind, to see whether the Buddha is fully awakened, self-awakened, um, and to see the purity of his heart, the virtue of Lord Buddha through the mind, as the case was with Venerable Anuruddha and also with the chief disciple, Venerable Muhammad Gallana, who could do this all the time. <clears throat> they didn't have to talk with Lord Buddha. <laughs> Imagine being able to tap into Lord Buddha's mind. <laughs> talk about a safety zone. We have examples of Venerable Anuruddha, even at the time of Lord Buddha's uh, cremation, in fact, oh, death, excuse me. Many people thought that Lord Buddha had died. Venerable Ananda, actually, Venerable Anuruddha's half-brother, <clears throat> uh, a few times he just checks Lord Buddha's body um, and turns to lay people and the monks and he says, Bhante is left. And Anuruddha opens his eyes and says, Ananda, he hasn't. <laughs> Basically, Ananda, be quiet. And then a few minutes later, um, or hours later, Ananda checks again, and he, uh, he, again he says something like that, and Anuruddha again jumps in and says, he's still going through the jhanas. And then Ananda gives up, and he just looks at Anuruddha to give him the, the call, in a sense, to call it, as they say in medicine, and Anuruddha calls it, because he was checking, he was going, right behind Lord Buddha in the mind to see where he was going, what level of jhana he was entering, exiting. And Lord Buddha exits, leaves, we call it parinibbana, between the fourth and the fifth jhanas. How do we know that? Thanks to Venerable Anuruddha. So, and Venerable Muhammad Gallana had long, uh, well, several months earlier, about six months earlier had, had died. So. Thankfully, we had Venerable Anuruddha. So we don't have Venerable Anuruddha now, but we have the Viman Sutta that allows us to see things for ourselves, at least from an external purview, to infer the men, uh, mental state, the purity of heart, the virtuous character of Lord Buddha from the outside through their behavior that says so much and not when they're, let's say on a, on a podium or in front of a, a large crowd where they have to be in their best behavior as they say. So we're looking at the visible aspects of the teacher in this case, Lord Buddha. Uh, we're looking at his verbal and bodily conduct, his personal development uh, and purity of heart. Uh, as demonstrated in the interactions that he's having with students. You probably have heard about that Brahmin one time who comes in and scolds Lord Buddha as Lord Buddha is sitting with his bhikkhus. And he scolds and he uses uh, some foul language and, and is very physically agitated and angry. And then he says, what are you, what's your response? You're sitting there quietly, you're not saying anything. Lord Buddha smiling, equanimous, contented, completely aware. He's not numb. He's not in some kind of a trance. 
exited the reality of the scene. No, he's there, fully there, but he wasn't shaken. That says something to the listeners, to the, witness, the, the witnesses around them. So that will give us plenty of clues to know about who we're uh, dealing with in a sense. So interestingly enough, <laughs> many teachers today, lay and monastic, many, uh, gloss over the sutta or completely avoid it. Interesting, seeing that it puts them nicely under the microscope. So um, we need to be cognizant as students of this and um, really keeping it in mind. So the Lord Buddha continues, having tested and known this firsthand, the bhikkhu, uh, that the Lord Buddha doesn't have any defiled states of mind uh, through observing through the eyes and ears, the bhikkhu then investigates him further by trying to see if there are, are any signs or evidence of confusion or inconsistencies found within the Tathagata's behavior that can be scrutinized or observed whether through the eyes or ears. And after examining or having examined, excuse me, the Tathagata thus, the bhikkhu reaches the conclusion there are no signs or evidence of confusion or inconsistencies found within the Tathagata that can be scrutinized or observed whether through the eyes or ears. In the process of investigation, it's important for us to be using hum humility. We're not just like, you know, pad and paper or just standing there with our clipboard and checking to see how the teacher is, this and that. That's, that's ugly. Uh, or always, always interrogating. That's, there's a difference between interrogation and examination, the way I understand it, the way the sutta is explaining it also. So there needs to be integrity kept within the student. Um, and especially of our observation of our sila. Because we need to hold off on making any judgments um, and instead to focus on the behavioral patterns of the teacher. What is observable? And the teacher in question. So we need to be staying neutral, um, objective, and not listening to mere accounts, either good or bad. Usually it's always good, and it comes from the closest students of a teacher. And we're always impressed by, oh, the teacher said this, the teacher did this. Oh, you should have seen the teacher when somebody came and did this to him. And all of a sudden, uh, he was like standing so serene, this and that. Wow, wow. Or this magical thing happened. Uh, and then you go, wow, I can't wait to see that for myself. So now we're looking for those things. Meanwhile, we're missing, skipping the other facts that are observable in the teacher. The teacher maybe kicking the dog, yelling for no reason. Nothing having to do with the Dhamma, that is. Getting upset over nothing. And you're like, but that doesn't... So um, that's one way. And, and then to come into the investigation or examination with a position of he or she is a questionable teacher. 
so that's not approaching it in a scientific or objective manner. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing empirical evidence being sought by the student. That's the encouragement anyhow. So uh, the student's firsthand experience is number one. But we cannot obtain that, the firsthand experience, unless the student also has a decent amount of integrity and especially sila intact. They are holding up to the three trainings, basically. So they don't have malintent in examining. They just want to know. So this necessitates the presence of wisdom in our approach in, uh, in seeing and in finding out. Um, yeah, certain level of wisdom needs to be there as well as empathy, kindness, compassion, and especially validation through one's own practice. Checking in with yourself, like, would I do this? Or would any other teacher in this situation behave in the way that this teacher is behaving? So there's a lot of involvement on part of the student. We're not just quickly coming, rushing to conclusions here. So having tested and known this firsthand, the bhikkhu then investigates him further by trying to see if the Tathagata truly has within him undefiled and pure states that can be scrutinized, whether through observations made with the eyes or ears. And after having examined the Tathagata thus, the bhikkhu reaches the conclusion. There are indeed undefiled and pure states found within the Tathagata that can be scrutinized or observed, whether through the eyes or ears. Um, whether we are investigating through our own progress or we're, we're investigating ourselves to see if I'm actually improving or not or we're investigating the teacher we need to have a clear understanding of the Dhamma on some level we need to have a clarity in the, what the Dhamma is what we're getting from the Dhamma proper. And for this reason, we need to go and access the suttas. We need to study them. At the very least, the Dhammapada. Just the verses and checking the background stories, see, seeing the relatedness, the relevancy to the human condition of how these teachings came about and to find ourselves in that, in that story. So it requires us to have a good grasp of uh, also the Vinaya, the precepts. Otherwise we're complete outsiders. We cannot do a very good job at examining. It's like an astronomer um, studying a biologist or, or uh, uh, biological organism. Disciplines are different. So we need to have some level of understanding, comprehension of what we need to be looking for. Otherwise, we would just be borrowing somebody else's standards and applying it on this teacher. And that's not fair. 
And that's actually pointless because it really doesn't mean anything because it has nothing to do with us. It has to do with the other person and their standards. This is a personal investigation, personal verification, personal. Because after all, the beneficiary is oneself. So these two things have to be there, Dhamma and Vinaya, within our approach in investigation. Um, so, and, and these necessitate the presence of wisdom. They have to be there. Um, otherwise, we could easily fool ourselves into believing things and uh, that are not there. Like I mentioned earlier about some accounts that we've heard or overheard some students talking about, and uh, which pretty much uh, gets us closer and closer to guru worship, you know, and there's no gurus in, in the Dhamma. There isn't. And as, as evidenced by this sutta, if anything. Um, so um, so the, the three trainings must be there in oneself uh, because as the mind gets collected, we become more cognizant, not only of each word that the teacher may be saying, we also become mindful of our own speech, each word or sentence or question that we ask the teacher, each thought that's passing through our mind, we become very aware, sensitive to them. And we definitely become more aware of each action that we commit. And the more the teacher is living in coherence with the Dhamma, the more the student's mind settles down and their virtue rises. Their heart becomes purer and purer and purer. There's less confusion in the mind of the student because it it, that is, the, the teacher's uh, presence, the behavior, starts to have an impact on the student's mind and their behavior. Yes, it does have some level of emulation, of, of finding a, 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 a synchronicity, if you will. But that's where the inspiration part that I was mentioning earlier comes in. The student becomes more and more inspired to see themselves more than what they thought themselves to be, thanks to the presence of a teacher. Now, conversely, you might have a teacher that is bringing up more confusion in the mind, more aggression, more us versus them mentality. And this is our thing mentality. And when the student's mind goes towards the area of guru worship, oh, my teacher is infallible, unmistakable. Then we have a major problem because now the teacher is so sacrosanct that we cannot even, uh, we're, we're actually looking at the suttas to correct the suttas because our teacher's character or words obviously are not the same as the suttas. So the suttas must have been written by, you know, backwards people, basically people who are not as wise 
as my teacher over here. This is, we're treading on very, very thin ice here. So the Buddha always said in the great references in the Book of the Fours in the Anguttara Nikaya, references as to what to look for, uh, to validate, he always points it back to suttas, dhamma, and the vinaya. These two have to be embodied in the person of the teacher. So, uh, so in the presence of a teacher like that, a lot can be gained. And uh, not just about the teacher, by the way, but about ourselves, most importantly. We can gain so much. We can gain a great deal through that interaction. So it can be a wonderful opportunity. That's what I'm trying to say. As a student uh, is guided by the teacher, uh, the good teacher, to even, even become one's own teacher one day. In fact, that is the bottom line. The teacher's main goal is to get the student to be so good that they can become their own teachers. No longer tied in, shackled to the teacher. So having tested and known this firsthand, the bhikkhu then investigates further by trying to see if the venerable one has attained to this wholesome dhamma for a long time or just recently. And after having examined the venerable one thus, the bhikkhu reaches the conclusion the Venerable One has indeed attained to this wholesome Dhamma for a long time now, and not just recently. So here we see a shift of pronouns, don't we? So far it was the Tathagata. He was saying, um, by trying to see if the Tathagata, now we're introduced this Ayang um, Asma, it's uh, in Pali, which is this Venerable One. Where'd that come from? It was tathagata, 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 until we get to this section of the sutta. And all of a sudden we see Lord Buddha introducing the venerable one instead of the tathagata. So um, here, the examination is being clearly pointed out, pointed out that it is not an examination purely pointed at Lord Buddha himself only. This is for everyone. Every monastic out there, Lord Buddha is saying. And in our time period, we can also include lay teachers out there. But we'll focus our attention on the monastics because the term is the venerable one. So it is not reserved, these examination methods, these steps are not reserved only for the Buddha. And um, it's, it's important for us uh, to, to consider that all and any monastics are included in this. Um, because after all, it's the spiritual litmus test, if you will, of uh, Maintaining checks and balances of the teacher's virtuous qualities. Otherwise, we don't have any methods of, 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 of uh, a standard in a sense, other than the Lord Buddha. But here we have an actual 
method of knowing how to uh, authenticate a teacher for us. An interesting incident happened some years ago where I was, uh, I can't name names, of course, but I was, I found myself in a precarious position where I was witnessing some quite uh, um, unbecoming uh, behavior uh, with a certain teacher. Um, and with several individuals, uh, interactions, this and that, and that was creating much confusion in me about this teacher. And um, so there was a battle going on because I knew this sutta. And then I brought this to the attention of the teacher and the teacher basically, well, I was scolded, let me just say, I, I'm gonna use I statements here. I was scolded for scrutinizing the teacher, for inquiring, for asking questions, teacher, why did you behave like this? First of all, I had to put it in the preamble by saying, uh, I feel very, uh, well, I, I feel awful that I have to bring this up to you, but I am confused, I am hurt, I'm in pain, I am really struggling here to make sense of you as a teacher and this, and this is louder because I'm seeing this every day with different people as we or you interact specifically. So now the attention turned on me by, well, I am the student and I'm, I don't have the right to scrutinize the teacher, to investigate. Well, now I had to really scratch my head because I knew that Lord Buddha had officially permitted the student to ask the question. And I brought this sutta's name up and the teacher didn't know this. So I said, ah, well, who would I go with? <laughs> we have the Buddha and we have a teacher. Teacher that is not demonstrating the qualities of Lord Buddha, as far as virtue goes, this and that. But I, the person in this case, needs to be coming from a good place, not seeking judgment, not, not you know, being judge, you know, jury and executioner. No, none of that. No contention there. But just, is there Dhamma here? And if your heart is going like this, if the mind is in that state, something's wrong. Because Dhamma does the opposite. There's peace. Remember, the unshakable serenity of mind. That's the term used by Lord Buddha to describe the state of an arahant. And that's what we're aspiring for. And nowhere on the path a student is, or anyone is supposed to go through that, especially by the teacher. So, but there's a term here in this verse at the end. It says, um, the venerable, uh, the question is, um, has the venerable one indeed attained this wholesome Dhamma for a long time or, uh, or just recently? So some people might think about this being referred to uh, or referring to um, whether the person had become an arahant recently or not. And this is where the translations, uh, the different translators approach it differently. 
and they just go verbatim, just like that, or um, understand it in the context of other suttas. For example, there's another sutta where Lord Buddha is talking to King Pasenadi, and um, there was a question, and uh, Lord Buddha says, whether the, yeah, it's a young bhikkhu we're talking about, who just became an arahant yesterday, or another bhikkhu who had been an arahant for 50 years now, there's no difference in the sanctity of the state because we're looking always at the virtuous character of the arahant and the purity of mind. So it's not that. Then we, you know, somebody might ask the question, then what is he referring to? Well, the way I understand it, the way some other um, uh, teachers understand it is that how long is the teacher or the, um, the venerable one uh, able to experience that state of Dhamma, meaning that clarity of mind, shall we say, or the understanding of the Dhamma? Is it sporadically or haphazardly taking place ever so often? So they're in and out and it's totally unpredictable etc. So basically, they're only getting glimpses of the Dhamma. So that is under question. So, uh, and that other sutta that I mentioned, uh, it comes from the Sangyutta Nikaya, and it's called the Dahara Sutta. So um, let's continue on. Having tested and known this firsthand, the bhikkhu then investigates further by trying to see if the Venerable One has acquired fame and renown and whether there is present in his heart the dangers associated with acquiring fame and renown. Here, bhikkhus, it is important to consider that so long as the Venerable One has not yet acquired fame and renown, the dangers associated with these two are too early to be detected or found within him. I just fell in love with this statement. I had to turn the suttas and look back and to see what am, what am I reading? Is this some, something like a contemporary of mine had just written? Is this based off of current research, uh, like a panel of scholars and scientists and explorers and sociologists came up with this? But no, this was stated by Lord Buddha. Look how relevant it is to our time. He's delineating that simply because the teacher might not look like he's going or she's going after fame and renown, and there's no detectable sign, per se, that shows us they are going after those things to become famous or, or something, or being taken by fame, lusting after it, or wanting to hold on to fame, or wealth, or supporters. Simply because you didn't see it, that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It might very well mean that the teacher has not yet been exposed to those conditions yet. Aha! If you present the teacher with those sets of conditions, there is a chance, Lord Buddha is saying basically, so it's still, still too early to know for sure if the teacher is mesmerized after lusting, of going after all these desires for fame, for getting more support, to having more things. So it's too early, he says, wait. 
So I, I was just blown away with that statement. It stayed with me for, for years now. So it continues. It is only after the Venerable One has already acquired fame and renown that the dangers associated with these two may be detected or found within him. Oh. And after having examined the Venerable One thus, then the bhikkhu may reach the conclusion the Venerable One has indeed acquired fame and renown, but the dangers associated with these two are not detected or found within him. Wow. I just, it blows me away because it's so on it as far as calling out the dangers that a bhikkhu goes through, experiences this. Once they are surrounded by quote unquote, the right conditions. You might take a bhikkhu, a teacher, again, lay or monastic, doesn't matter. And they look very humble, very kind, very down to earth. But then you give them a few supporters. You give them a temple. Then you make the temple a little bit bigger. Or, well, just let's listen to the teacher. Is there conversation, are there hints being dropped that, you know what, moving to this other bigger vihara or temple or monastery would be actually much better. Instead of five acre land, let's go with 150 acre land, etc. Let me have this possession, let me have that. We need to get a bigger car. Why don't we get three cars? Why don't we get a brand new car, a bigger, fancier? What happened? Yesterday, the person was very humble and now they're not. Well, simply because the seeds had not yet found the right conditions to grow, to sprout the seeds of the defilements that are there, that could be there in this case. So that's what we need to uh, be careful not to be quick and wait. So uh, also in the case of Vimansaka, we need to remember that the examination of Vimansaka um, is always denoting the presence of wisdom. And this is a, you know, it has its own place, a very important place in the Dhamma. Uh, enough so that we see it also as one of the factors of, excuse me, excuse me, four bases of spiritual power or psychic power, the Deepada. And uh, if you recall, there's, you know, as I said, it's four and uh, to develop um, in your practice and idi uh, are uh, called powers and usually they uh, signify the, the psychic powers. Um, you can call them spiritual powers too. So therefore, the first one is chanda, which is the desire. Um, it's, it's funny because many people think that in Buddhism, we don't have desire or desire is always to be looked down upon, but no. If you don't have the desire, you won't be here today. If you don't have this kind of desire, you can't attain arachya or even a jhana. So there's a desire, then there's a wholesome, that's what we're talking about. It's called um, dhamma chanda. So uh, seeking for the, the desire for dhamma. So chanda is number one. Next is virya, or the effort, the persevering energy that we need to put in every single day. That's why the teacher is always 
always pushing you in that direction, encouraging you to sit longer, encouraging you not to move, encouraging you to make it consistent. Always, always urging you with Sang Vega, with that sense of urgency. And that's, that, that is impossible without effort. That's what, what we have as Vidya. And then we have Chitta or the mind or heart. Uh, and then uh, we have the fourth one, which is the same as today's uh, sutta's name, uh, or the version that's a little bit shorter, Vimansa, uh, which again is clearly uh, representing wisdom. So examination without wisdom cannot take place. Wisdom has to be there, like in any principle that we've covered in the Dhamma. So uh, just to go back on the desire part, uh, or sometimes it's also called enthusiasm or chanda. Uh, it's a wholesome one. So because it leads us continuously to understand the different layers, to unlayer the mind further and further and further from stage to stage. Otherwise, we can easily get stuck and become stagnant. In this, you know, we get stuck in this inertia. We can't move. We like and we fall in love with our own perceptions of what the Dhamma is. So we need to be jolted out of that. So, um, and that's why we need to be inspired. Either through the suttas, through the personalities represented in the suttas, let's say the chief disciples or any of the bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, or individuals, or obviously Lord Buddha, uh, so that we can get to experience what has not been experienced yet. Yet. And for that, we need chanda. We need that wholesome desire. But it requires us watering it every single day, every single moment. And again, this is not just an examination of a teacher or Lord Buddha. This is also examination of our own progress. Am I progressing? Or am I just fooling myself? Just like those students who gather around the guru type of a teacher who keep telling themselves a story that has nothing to do with reality or the Dhamma for that matter. But am I progressing in my path? Let's be honest. Is there a difference in my reactivity, not just reaction, but the way I respond to situations are, is it kind of becoming more and more refined? Am I more present? Am I more mindful? Am I seeing the thoughts unravel? Am I seeing myself when I'm kind of falling away from being alert, just being taken by whatever's coming through the sixth sense doors? Am I? That requires examination. Vimansaka. So bringing that mindset of investigating and examining to our own lives is really crucial to advance our practice where wisdom can grow and um, life becomes more fun. So um, Vimansaka could also be called uh, wisdom in its applied form. Um, so, um, and, and that really reaches a climax when we talk about the, uh, our own practice of meditation.
and whether we're falling apart. Um, meanwhile, telling ourselves lies that we're not. So, um, so yeah. Having tested and known this firsthand, the bhikkhu then investigates further by trying to see if the Venerable One restrains himself from indulging in sensual pleasures as a result of having destroyed lust within himself, or does he merely restrain himself because of fear of being discovered? Huh. And after having examined the Venerable One thus, the bhikkhu then may reach the conclusion the Venerable One indeed is restrained from indulging in sensual pleasures as a result of having destroyed lust within himself and not because of any fear of being discovered. Visually and audibly, using the eyes, using the ears, witnessing becomes very crucial. In order for us to experience the behavior, as we said earlier, empirically, so this has nothing to do with the teacher's charisma, the looks, the way they sound, uh, their mannerisms, uh, whether they sound or look impressive or not. This instead looks at the entirety of one's behavior, the teacher's behavior, and it is being checked with the Dhamma and the Vinaya, meaning Asking the question, is my teacher, is he or she being virtuous? That question can always be asked, always. And we should never hesitate to, 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 to bring it up, to ourselves at least. We don't have to go and confront the teacher uh, all the time, unless it reaches a boiling point, for example. Um, so does the teacher's behavior clearly indicate um, that he is mindful all the time, for example. Most of the time. How about that? Let's lower the bar. We're not expecting to see a Buddha in front of us, but most of the time. Um, do his words, for example, inculcate, bring up a sense of peace and understanding around oneself? Um, especially while we engage with him or her, uh, in the form of Q&A, for example, on the Dhamma? Or does a question blow his top off, for example, when, you know, uh, that's something that I've seen quite a number of times uh, in some places. Uh, or does the teacher's behavior expose something altogether different or contrary um, to what they're portraying? themselves to be. So, uh, and sometimes there's a lot going on. There's a lot um, riding on, if you will, um, the teacher. Uh, like we talked about earlier of, of renown and fame and supporters, this and that. So sometimes, um, you know, the, the, you know, not everyone is awakened, let's face it. Not everyone is going to be virtuous. Let's face that. Uh, so we, it behooves upon us to, to take the role of responsible uh, individuals and for ourselves, at least. We're not going out there to prove, or, or in this case, disprove teachers, to discredit them. Aha, got you. That's not the attitude. That's not what Vimansaka is saying. 
we're going in to check, investigate, and then understand our relationship because guess what? My time is running out. The person is saying this to themselves. Am I practicing? Am I on the right path, basically? Because I have no time to waste. Thank you very much. If this is not the place. I got to go find someone else then to help me at least a portion of the way. That's the objective in a sense. So the Buddha continues. Now, because if others should come and ask the examining bhikkhu, this is interesting. So the others are now in, involved. Some other people, the groups of bhikkhus or fellow students, etc., or fellow teach or teachers in this case. Uh, so if they came and examined uh, uh, or asked the examining bhikkhu, and based on what evidence have you concluded that the venerable one indeed is restrained from indulging in sensual pleasures? As a result of having destroyed lust within himself and not because of any fear of being discovered. Excuse me. And if he were to answer correctly, Lord Buddha says, the Buddha would, uh, excuse me, the bhikkhu would then reply to them by saying, it has been observed that whether the Venerable One is living alone with his companions in the holy life or completely alone, whether he is supported or being fully uh, unsupported, or whether instructing others in a crowd or seeing those that are indulging in sensual pleasures, engrossed and defiled by material possessions or not, nevertheless, the Venerable One does not look down upon them. For I have heard this in the presence of the Blessed One, as he declared, I have restrained, I, I behave restrained by not indulging in sensuality as a result of lust being fully destroyed within me and not because of fear of being discovered. Fear of being discovered, fear of being caught. So I need to be on my best behavior. So the Buddha is encouraging us to see beyond that. And he's uh, giving the hypothetical of a bhikkhu who came and examined him and seeing that he is restrained not because of fear. Fear or terror is, in Pali, we call it bhaya. Bhaya. And um, as putujanas, uh, putujana is again used often throughout the suttas, uh, putujana is a term given for the ordinary average. Um, unevolved being. The person might have a PhD, several PhDs, so they could be very educated but still be a putujana, meaning they are caught within the defilements net. So uh, a putujana, a regular ordinary person, has to uh, deal with four different types of bhayas or, or fears or terrors. And um, one of them is, is uh, obviously um, the fear of being caught within the defilements. The second one is uh, to be um, terrified by uh, continuing on the cycle of rebirth, meaning sansaric cycles, being caught in that net. The third one is uh, the fear of being reborn in the woeful or lower states of existence, hell realms, uh, hungry ghosts, animals, etc., demons. 
And then the fourth one is the fear or terror of being criticized, scrutinized. Now, um, the commentaries and uh, suttas, we see how um, we, uh, even though the Patujana has to do with these four, um, the Arahant is completely free from these four. Meanwhile, the, the noble disciple who's in training, we call them uh, Seka, um, either a Sotapanna, Sakadagami, or Anagami, stream winner or stream enterer, um, once returner and non-returners, they have three of these fears. Um, they are afraid of being criticized. They're afraid of still being caught in the uh, um, cycles of samsara. And they're still afraid of uh, the defilements, loba, dosa, moha, uh, greed, lust, uh, hatred, anger, and delusion. Uh, but the thing that they don't have, the terror of, is the terror of being reborn in the lower realms. That just doesn't exist for them. But as far as the arahant is concerned, is completely or she's completely fearless. Nothing touches them as far as fear or terror. So uh, completely free. So uh, then the Tathagata himself, so basically the Tathagata, or, or in this case, Lord Buddha, uh, coming back from the Venerable One to talking about himself, he's saying uh, the Tathagata is restrained not because of any of these fears, Because a person, a teacher, might be afraid of being criticized, so he or she has to be in their best behavior. Well, what if I'm being recorded? Usually, when a person is being recorded, they straighten up and this and that, um, because hey, it's going to be there for forever, probably. So I might cover this aspect of me up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So none of these things are behind Lord Buddha restraining himself. Then the Tathagata himself may be questioned further on this by asking him directly, are there within the Tathagata any defilements that may be scrutinized or observed whether through the eyes or ears? By the way, if you notice, we're back into uh, the Tathagata now because he cannot speak for the venerable ones. He can speak for oneself because the bhikkhu is now being questioned by others in that hypothetical. So he's saying, if now the bhikkhu who has reached those conclusions were to be asked, then this is what happens. These are the proper responses. Then I would respond by saying, there are no defilements within the Tathagata that may be scrutinized or observed, whether through the eyes or ears. And if the Tathagata were to be asked further, are there any confusions or inconsistencies found within the Tathagata's behavior that can be scrutinized or observed through, whether through the eyes or ears? Uh, then I would respond by saying, there are no confusions or inconsistencies found within the Tathagata's behavior that can be scrutinized or observed, whether through the eyes or ears. So when we talk about uh, consistencies or inconsistencies, we're talking about behavior matching their words. You probably have heard me use that phrase so many times. Uh, trust the behavior, never the words. 
Well, that was offered to me by a fellow therapist years ago. And lo and behold, I didn't know that Lord Buddha had mentioned this 26 centuries earlier, <laughs> as evidenced by what we're seeing here in the Vimansaka Sutta. So, uh, so through the process of asking straight questions, the Vimansaka Sutta is reminding us, uh, the readers or listeners in this case, to always evaluate what it is that we are placing our faith into. Is it our own ideas? What we think or should be the case? What's happening in front of us? Or something entirely different? Uh, and something has to be said about uh, inconsistencies because false teachers are known, identified through inconsistencies. Um, and uh, no wonder why so many false teachers don't like the sutta. Uh, so something to know, to bear in mind. And uh, philosophers love uh, sometimes to play around. Uh, Buddha calls them uh, eel wrigglers. If you've ever seen an eel or ever touched one, I don't know if you can, but they slip through your fingers, through your hands. You can't grasp hold of them. So he calls these philosophers who play with inconsistencies like eel wrigglers because it's so slippery. They're trying to catch very slippery soap or something. And uh, Channa, one of the bhikkhus uh, in the Sangha in the earlier days, he, was, um, he, he kept on getting in trouble all the time. And uh, the Sangha would call him um, for basically, um, it was like question and answer, like, okay, did this happen? Were you in this because there's this, somebody's accusing you of something? Because in the old days, I would say old days, because nowadays it doesn't happen enough. And that's why you have a lot of adhamma around. Uh, people, teachers are not being scrutinized enough and not being put forth in front of their behavior. So accountability is not there as much as it used to be. So in those days when accountability really was there, people had to speak up and, and, and also bear the brunt of their actions. Uh, Channa, for example, would always uh, come up with inconsistencies. And he would say, well, what makes you ask this question? Uh, how can, can we check the validity of this person who is accusing me? Or what's the point of all this? Or talking about something totally uh, you know, different than this topic. So he would always avoid bringing about uh, confusion and inconsistencies. So um, the Buddha always uh, is, is pointing us to the fact that there are no such things uh, that we see uh, in his teachings. So ine inevitably this, this sutta is pointing the finger back at us the work is to be done here in the heart. So we need to become islands unto ourselves where the Dhamma could, could, could grow by relying on our own efforts, supported by the Dhamma, supported by the suttas and validated by our virtuous lifestyle. That has to be there. 
whether it's the vinaya in the case of the monks and nuns or 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 the precepts uh for lay people so that there could be uh, growth happening and which means wisdom and and uh your meditation practice is really growing so um are there any defiled states within the Tathagata that can be scrutinized or observed through the eyes or ears? Um, uh, then I would respond by saying, undefiled and pure states are indeed found, uh, undefiled and pure states are indeed found within the Tathagata that can be scrutinized, undefiled whether through observations made with the eyes or ears. Furthermore, although these states are my range and scope of experience, nevertheless, I do not identify with them. So he's talking now about the sublime states, undefiled states. Uh, two weeks ago, we were uh, talking about uh, Mahaveda La Sutta where Venerable Sariputta was going through um, the different states of uh, releases, liberations. So um, that is what uh, obviously in the, the sublime one being the signless animitta stage or what we call as uh, the arahanship, uh, samapatti, um, freedom from that. Um, or even in the case of uh, the Sanya Vedaita Niroda Samapati, which is uh, cessation of, of feeling and perception, um, from which the person can enter into Arhanship. These are sublime states. And these truly are happening in the mind of the Tathagata, as, uh, as far as uh, they are observable. But at the very end of the, ver uh, the statement, Lord Buddha says, but I do not identify with them. If there is identification, the person is not an arahant. And you can even bring it down. It doesn't have to be those cessation states or, or, or uh, arahantship uh, per se. You can even bring it down to the boundless uh, states of uh, metta, karuna, mudita, upekka, for example, when they're spreading. So you're really uh, experiencing the beyond the fourth jhana. These can also be called sublime states, yes. But is there identification going on with these states? or not. And uh, if there are, then the, basically what that means is the person is now stuck, which will be manifested in their behavior, by the way, sooner or later. And then the boundless state or that attainment becomes their refuge because they need to hide or run back to that state in order for them to pull themselves out of a sense of guilt. But that also is very short-lived because so long as the hindrances are there, you cannot enter into any of the jhanas to begin with. So then that creates this other state of confusion for the meditator because now they're fighting with themselves.
for that reason, we always have the first of the three trainings being always pushed, always being referenced, always being highlighted as the crucial, crucial point for us to focus on, meaning sila. The moment there is a confusion in the mind or in your state, or you feel like you're holding on to this hot lead, you know, bowl or something in your in your hands and you carry it with you in your heart, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Please don't shun it. Don't try to play it away or just like, you know, minimize its importance because it's there. It might be a memory. It might be something that has happened yesterday or this morning. Or you felt guilty for experiencing something or having a thought that you didn't find to be virtuous, let's say. And you're basically pushing yourself around, shoving yourself around and, and scolding yourself in your mind constantly. Or maybe, maybe something uh, far uh, less, uh, you know, in significance, let's say, uh, not having sat for the full two hours that you needed to, you had promised yourself. And now you're beating yourself up over that. Well, that's also going to create a non-virtuous state in the mind. And it's going to hold you back from going deeper into the practice or even entering any of the jhanas. Uh, so, but all of these examples demonstrate that there is an identification with something, something. So we need to be careful of this and always keep an eye out on that. And Lord Buddha continues, because uh, bhikkhus, a disciple desi desiring to learn the Dhamma should approach a teacher who now he's giving you what to do, the steps of what to do. Once you found such a teacher is saying, this is what you do next. Bhikkhus, a disciple desire, desiring to learn the Dhamma should approach a teacher who declares himself in this manner. The teacher will then instruct and teach him the Dhamma sequentially stage by stage, leading him to more and more exalted states, elucidating and revealing to him its dark and white counterparts, basically areas that are clear, areas that are not clear in the Dhamma, because we're going to come across things that we're going to be somewhat confused about at first. So those need to be clarified. Someone who has already walked that path will be able to allow us some understanding, some clarity about the fork in the road, per se. Uh, and as the teacher instructs and explains the Dhamma to the bhikkhu, the time comes whereby the disciple, through his own personal and direct understanding, becomes firmly established in the Dhamma. Firmly established in the Dhamma. That's a beautiful set of words basically, um, that signifies a major transformation in the life of the student. Let me continue. Then he suddenly and naturally develops the unshakable faith in the Tathagata, as he knows in his heart, the Blessed One is perfectly awakened. The Dhamma is well proclaimed, and the Sangha of bhikkhus are practicing the holy path. No one told him this. Lord Buddha is saying these sentiments, these verifications, uh, statements of it, manifest 
immediately in the mind of such a person who has now been established in the Dhamma. Uh, when we are, when we have faith in the Dhamma, in the Buddha, we also have faith in the Dhamma and the Sangha. They go hand in hand. That's why we call them the Tisaran or the three refuges. Now, uh, A question that can come up as to what method can be used uh, by which we um, by we I mean a compassionate, kind, conscientious, wise investigator or examiner having all those qualities as an examiner, as, as the person, what method could be used in order for the person to know that a teacher has truly awakened? We need to ask this question. Does, does the teacher, the Dhamma teacher, inspire within oneself, within us, the kind of faith that completely transforms you. It transforms you viscerally. Can this person, can this teacher move you uh, as they're sharing Dhamma with you, whereby you can become anchored in such strong faith in the Tathagata? So do they move you experientially? It's not something you're telling yourself. The bhikkhu is not sitting there hearing somebody else saying, oh, you need to repeat this. Uh, the Tathagata is fully awakened. Like, we say, which has turned into a beautiful uh, chant, a declaration. But in the heart of the person who just been established in such a strong faith, it's a total, total different, uh, has a different resonance. So, so in other words, do they move you to have the kind of faith that will lead you to taste and have the vision of the Dhamma? In other words, can they get you to become a Sotapanna, a stream enterer? That is a valid formula to know if, if this is a good teacher or not for you. So approaching it from that angle tells us that having such a faith is truly noble because it is wise and it is the product of wisdom, the product of wisdom, having lived with wisdom, pursued it. Now, this is not blind faith. Remember, this sutta is all about examination. So through examination, there is faith being introduced in the, in the sutta suddenly by Lord Buddha, because he's saying what happens sequentially in the mind of the student as they are pursuing it through wisdom, the step-by-step -step process of investigating a teacher. And even though you might not have a teacher like that, uh, the sutta still can work to by proxy. <laughs> 
they can take the role of the teacher also. So long as you're not approaching it with pride or conceit, the suttas that is. So uh, let's continue on. Now bhikkhus, if other bhikkhus should come and ask the bhikkhu, and based on what evidence have you concluded that the blessed one is perfectly awakened, the Dhamma is well proclaimed and the Sangha bhikkhus are practicing the holy path. In answering them correctly, the bhikkhu would reply to them by saying, um, friends, in desiring to learn the Dhamma, I approached the blessed one and the teacher instructed and taught me the Dhamma sequentially stage by stage, leading me to more and more exalted states elucidating and revealing to me its dark and white counterparts. And as the teacher instructed and explained the Dhamma to me, through my own personal and direct understanding, I became firmly established in the Dhamma. Then I suddenly and naturally developed the unshakable faith in the Tathagata, as I knew in my heart, the Blessed One is perfectly awakened, the Dhamma is well proclaimed, and the Sangha of Bhikkhus are practicing the holy path. we see according to our capacities. So it does take a wise person to identify wisdom in another, especially when we're talking about the wisdom of a teacher. What we often have these days, or even at the time of the Buddha, as we see, are less than ideal levels of wisdom, or even awakening, um, where we can try to presume or assume uh, another person's awakening without having a clue, unfortunately, often. So sometimes this, this question recently has been coming up a lot uh, in different uh, surroundings and in different places, or even students asking, or potential students asking about Sotapanna, uh, this and that. Um, people presenting themselves as, oh, um, I'm a teacher of Sotapannas. Okay. Uh, or I am a Sotapanna, or something like that. Fine. Good for you, I guess. So, what do you want from me? So, basically, what is important is to look at the presence of wisdom, if it is there or not. Is there that level of confidence as declared by that bhikkhu within you, within the person? Because if there is, then really, it really doesn't matter to be called this or that. It's just a title. And the Blessed One continued, bhikkhu is when someone finds in his heart such strong faith being firmly established in the Tathagata while using similar expressions and phrases, then his faith and confidence is hereby declared as being well-established, thoroughly rooted in vision and understanding. And once the heart is thus finally settled in this invincible state, it is impossible for it to be shaken or converted by any recluse, Brahmin, Deva, Mara, Brahma, or anyone else in existence. At the very least, Lord Buddha is saying, at the very least, the person has reached stream entry. Because only a person who has reached that level or higher is unshakable in their faith. 
nobody could shake or even convert them um, in any way. They found the teaching. They found the teacher, Lord Buddha. So we see throughout the sutta how personal verification is held in such high esteem. In Dhammapada, um, we see Lord Buddha talking about, in fact, placing the person who lacks faith, interestingly enough, lacks faith. He doesn't have the faith, but they're not just like going around saying, I don't believe in this, I don't believe. No, they are investigator nevertheless. They do have an inquiring investigative mind and they do come from a good place in their heart. But they're not the blind believer, the one who just uh, faith, like I was mentioning about Vakkali earlier, he was mesmerized. He had so much devotional faith. So when compared between the two, Lord Buddha places the one without faith, Asada, as, and considers that person to be the premier person uh, compared to the, uh, the devotional faith, uh, etc. So because one refuses the premier person, the higher uh, person in this case, is, is refusing the cookie cutter answers refusing to believe. They want to test, they want to see. They have an inquiring mind. And remember this whole path, this magga of the Dhamma is all about wisdom, all about wisdom. And the Buddha is saying, don't believe in me even. And the highest fruits are actually tasted, attained, thanks to wisdom, not faith, not faith. So what we mean by awakening after all is a very personal experience. As we see in the example of the bhikkhu used as, uh, as an example by Lord Buddha, that is a very personal experience. It's one that can only be known by the person for themselves within oneself and through one's own efforts. And when I say within one's own efforts, that also includes direct understanding of the person. That's why I said we're visceral. Experientially, they know it's a personal experience. It's undeniable. And for this reason, it is unshakable. No one can dislodge you from that. Not even Mara. Not even the Highest the Brahmas could actually do that. And there's a, in one of the suttas, there's a, not even Buddha can actually shake that. <laughs> and what I mean by that is there was an incident where a, 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 a layperson was there listening to Lord Buddha's talks one day. And guess what? He firmly gets established in the Dhamma by becoming a Sotapanna. So he's walking as a totally different person back home. Uh, and he goes inside and he's, he's going about his business at home. And then guess who knocks on the door? The man opens and it's the Buddha. And the man is like, uh, Lord, uh, he bows down. Pays him his, what brings you here? What can I do? Like, you know, gives and, and, and uh, the Buddha 
in front of him, uh, doesn't want to sit down, this and that. He just came to invalidate the experience that this person had by saying, you know, what I was saying about, I think it was the five khandas that he had uh, elaborated, Lord Buddha, which led the person to a depth of understanding through wisdom. He says, that was actually incorrect. So I hate to say it, to break, you know, break it to you, but that experience that you had, wasn't it? The person standing what looks like Lord Buddha in front of him for all intents and purposes is there, says what? And immediately his heart asks the question to the Buddha in front of him. He says, is that you Mara? And Mara can never lie when called upon like that and immediately reveals himself as Mara. So he had taken the shape of Lord Buddha coming knocking on the man's door to invalidate, to, to, to the discredit is a statement, is his attainment of, of, of uh, Sotapanna. He says, I'm sorry, Buddha. This is real. That's how strong of a change seeing the Dhamma. Jnana dasana, having that vision of the Dhamma can change in a person, the person. And uh, remember Nigantanata Putta, Mahavira, we, we talked about in the Upali Sutta a few weeks ago, um, the Jain leader. One time there was an incident between him and one of the chief supporters of Lord Buddha, uh, who was a householder by the name of Chitta. He was very well known and he was very wealthy, but he was very developed as well. He was so good with his Dhamma that he could teach the Mahateras, the monks. Uh, remember the dark and light parts of the Dhamma that I was mentioning earlier? Uh, when monks would not understand or come at a standstill, uh, on some Dhammic point, he would be the one who would be called in to clarify things for them. That's how good he was. <laughs> being a householder, being a householder, uh, talking to monks that have been probably monks for 30, 40 years probably. So uh, anyhow, there's an incident where Chitta is trying to go and see Lord Buddha, but it's too early in the day. And he says, okay, where should I go? I'm out. And he says, oh, the giants are sitting there in, the, in that camp. So let me go and sit with them, see what they're talking about. And because of his status and who he was, uh, Mahavira sees him and he invites him close to sit next to him. And he basically was always trying to expose something, a weak point in the Dhamma Sasana. And he asks him about his faith, his allegiance to Lord Buddha. And uh, specifically, so he liked to, to trap people, Mahavira, uh, as we saw even last in the Upali Sutta. So here too, he's asking a question on meditation, some type of meditation uh, attainment rather. 
uh, through meditation. And uh, he asks uh, Chitta, the householder, as to um, what does his faith say, his faith in the Buddha, in regards to this attainment. And he says, uh, as it relates to my faith in the Blessed One, he says, I don't go by faith on this attainment, um, by faith in the Blessed One. And he says, aha! You just declared yourself that you don't have faith in the Tathagata, in your teacher, but you're a follower. You're a blind follower of him. You just claim it. You, you just said so yourself, he says, in front of all his students, trying to embarrass him. And calmly, Chitta turns to him and says, Bhante, you completely misconstrued what I was trying to say by interjecting so proudly. I didn't finish my sentence. He says, I don't go on my knowledge of this attainment through faith on the Tathagata. He says, I know this to be the case. I know this attainment to be this way through my own personal experience of it. I know it for a fact, not relying on Lord Buddha. And that shuts him up, Mahavir. So I always found that to be somewhat funny encounter with Mahavira, uh, where he set up a trap again. And here we have the role of uh, personal verification. That is on us. That behooves upon us to do the work of verifying the teachings. So, um, and it is in this manner, because that one examines the teacher, the Tathagata, and his qualities. This is Lord Buddha closing the sutta. According to the Dhamma, that is, through the validation of one's own understanding that is directly experienced in one's heart, by seeing for oneself the proof of the Dhamma taught by the Tathagata. This is what the Blessed One said. And the bhikkhus were delighted in hearing the Blessed One's words. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. So we see how this sutta, the Vimansaka Sutta, is about personal verification, leading the person all the way to tasting the fruits of the Dhamma for oneself. You're not relying on someone else to taste it. But once verified through the living example of the teacher, faith is generated within the, the, the student's heart. And this faith, when it is supported by wisdom throughout, it leads the student to break oneself free from the shackles from the obstacles, the hangups, the inertia of inaction, of complacency. Because this trust, after all, the trust in the teacher is simply, once it's matured enough, it leads, it, it becomes a springboard, a jumping board that can take the person who now has, who now has such a strong faith in the teacher to have 
faith in oneself. Because don't forget, the, the student has been working continuously as they were observing the teacher. Working on what? Working on their virtue, working on their mindfulness, cultivation of mind. They were working as every single phase of their progress was taking place. It was taking shape thanks to the wisdom growth in them. That's what we call practice after all. It needs to be evidenced by proof. The proof is in your life change, in the transformations that are taking place within you that are detectable by you. Because as you were carefully, meticulously observing the teacher's behavior, that also becomes a template of how to approach one's own behaviors. And this is crucial. This is where the Dhamma no longer resides in the pages of the suttas. We carry the Dhamma in our hearts. And we see the defilements whenever they occur or whenever they show up. So the undeniability, if you will, of personal verification, of our verification, as a result of our examination, then gives us the impetus, the drive. It becomes the propellant, if you will, to push us to taste, first to test, and then to taste the effectiveness of the teachings. And in that way, continuously develop uh, our serenity of mind along with penetrative wisdom. Those two have to be there. Samatha and Vipassana, calming of the mind and developing of wisdom. Always having wisdom there, being honest. We can't be wise if we're not honest. And that's what this whole endeavor of the Vimansaka Sutta is, to be honest in our approach and to also look for honesty in the teacher. <laughs> honesty as each stage on the path requires its own personal verification as we're going from one stage to the next. Each one of them requires us to be verifying them personally, asking the right questions instead of make-believing anything. And as we taste the fruits of the Dhamma until full Aranship, these things will take place. But it's only to be known by the person for oneself. And hopefully enough, if we come across a teacher, as described in the sutta, they will also help us to identify those qualities for us. So I will pause here and uh, open for any questions, comments, thoughts you might have. I hope uh, you enjoyed the sutta and uh, yeah. Any thoughts?
Bhante. I have a question that's not exactly on this suitor, but the suitor touched on it. So I don't know. I was hoping someone else may have had a talk and we could continue the discussion on the suitor. But in my meditation and in my understanding of the Dharma, that I'm trying to reduce the level of identification that I have, you reduce the I that's in things as I interact with the world. And especially in meditation, I'm when I'm feeling matter, it's not an I that's there. In the, at least that's what I'm working towards. In some of the suttas, the Buddha talks about pervading metta to all of the quarters and then compassion and so through the Brahma Viharas. And in my meditation, as my self-identification gets to the lowest level that I can achieve so far, I can see, I can feel that without an eye, I could pervade metta because I don't need an eye to pervade metta, that is just metta. And it's the same with joy. I can be joyful, but it's not uh, me being joyful. And with equanimity, of course, there's not me and my either, but with compassion, I'm just a little bit confused how I could eliminate self-identification altogether because compassion, there needs to be a I that's compassionate and there needs to be someone else to be compassionate for or of. And uh, the in trying to figure out that conundrum, how can I not self-identify when compassion, the word interconnectedness comes, that when we, we feel interconnectedness, then that's what causes compassion to arise because there's no difference between us and the suffering of others. Um, but still in my meditation, what I'm trying to achieve when I'm trying to release and relax any of those thoughts that are coming to me, that really that's also removing all self-identification. It's, and it's, it's not really bringing interconnectedness up. So I'm just wondering if you, how do you feel on, on the question, can we feel compassion without having a self-identification? Either can we feel it or how do we eliminate self-identity while we are trying to feel compassion and pervade that to all the quarters? Well, uh, there cannot be compassion if there is an I, the way I see it. Okay. Because that means that there is still that wall between you and I. See, if, you're, if we're walking close to a ridge, um, I remember last year um, I was in Scotland and uh, um, um, a student of mine had taken me there. Uh, and we were walking on this cliff. It was a national park. It was beautiful. It was windy, quite windy. And uh, so the wind was blowing from the, from the ocean and these sharp jagged cliffs. And, and there were no like walls or any kind of enclosure basically that would protect you from slipping. And I like to walk close to the edge sometimes 
so I, I was watching this and I was just enjoying the wind and I was trying to hold my ropes together and I had a sweater on. So it was really moving and I'm, I'm a big guy and it was still moving me obviously. And my students said, Bhante, I'm, I'm, I'm not comfortable walking like you. Uh, I said, please walk about a few feet inland, like, you know, because I'm enjoying this. You, I want you to be safe as well. But let's say uh, my student fell or slipped and he was in my position, let's say, and he fell. And I, at that moment, because I'm the closest person to him, I'm going to reach out and hold his hand, grab him with whatever I can get hold of. There's no more I there. I am him. There is no separation. I am here, you are there. This is my survival. And I'm going to put everything. Yes, we use I conventionally, of course, because we have to use language after all to interpret and, and, and convey concepts and feelings. But that's the extent of the usage, that I, the way I see it. But when I reach over and I, my skin touches his skin and I'm grabbing hold of him with all my might, with all my ability, all my strength, that's my survival. There is no separation. And I love this, this uh, uh, translate or interpretation of, of this, especially when it came to compassion and, and also leaning into mudita starting with loving kindness, of course. Uh, Bhante Punnaji, my late teacher, uh, he, he would say uh, that silver lining is getting fainter and fainter and fainter, less and less and less and less. Like drapes, for example, that or curtains that they've been used again and again and washed again and again and again for years and years until you start seeing through. Even if they were very thick, they would block the sun from coming in. Now you could see clearly the sun through it because there's hardly any threading left. So it's not a matter of you trying to eliminate or trying to achieve a state where there is less of the eye when you are pervading uh, compassion. I, in fact, I don't even think that that word is correct. Uh, even though we use it in the English chants, etc., pervading metta, for example, or compassion, or you know, etc. Pervading. It's it's. But we have to use words. It's a feeling, but we're using words. It's less than perfect, less than ideal, of course, but it's a feeling. And I used to struggle with this a lot until I had the image of like, wait a minute, if I pour uh, water into this mud, let's say, eventually, 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 it's going to get so full that it's going to seep from the edges. It's going to fall, overflow from the brim of the, of, the, of the cup. And where is it going to go? It's going to go elsewhere where there is less of it, let's say, in the other cups around it. So my encouragement, given your question, would be something like this. My approach would be something like this, in this case. Um, uh, imagining 
others who are less fortunate than yourself, anywhere in the universe, who have cups that are empty. But your cup is getting fuller and fuller and fuller with what? With compassion. So then the attention comes back to you. It's always with you. That has to be the pointed finger has to be on us. Meaning, usually people have the difficulty with either it's the metta, some people come with the difficulty with metta, others with mudita or, you know, compassion or etc. But that's a, for me, it's a telltale sign that something's up with the person vis-a-vis -vis this state. In this case, the feeling of metta or in, in your example, feeling of compassion. So I would invite the sense or I would invite compassion into my life and fill myself up with it. Meaning if I am being extremely demanding of myself, harsh, mean, unfair sometimes, because I don't, I, I don't do or live up to my standards, let's say. I'm not sitting enough or I'm not dedicated enough, whatever it may be, or it could be even from our childhood. With even the word compassion might not sit very well, but I would investigate my relationship with that state, not just the word, but stay in my body, feel compassion in my body. Because if you notice, I use the example of two bodies touching me reaching and holding the hand of my student who's about to slip and fall. So there is no separation there, the way I see it. So I would approach it by giving myself the compassion, meaning making sure that the cup is full, not just to the brim, but overflowing. And then inevitably it doesn't anymore, it doesn't need to have me jumping in or trying to do or change anything in order for me to pervade anything. It naturally will go there. Because like the breath, you know, in, in science, in biology, in fact, you know, the lungs, how they breathe in and out. Well, it's all a matter of the uh, how much saturation of air is there, either in the lungs or outside. So the pressure so when there is, when we are exhaling the air out of our lungs, now the, the atmosphere around the lungs outside the body is much more saturated with air, oxygen, nitrogen, whatever, but not so inside the lungs. So there's more pressure of air outside versus this. So it's, it's in a sense, um, it's, it's less. So, and we're always trying to, nature is always trying to reach a state of equilibrium. And this happens without us thinking, it's just a natural process. So, and then all of a sudden we have no other option that so long as we're alive, we have to go to get that air into the lung, which was empty of it. And now the lungs get so full that the lungs now are more saturated than the air per square foot, cubic actually foot, than there are inside the lungs. And now we have no other option, but that has to come out and balance the equation by uh, exhaling the air out. And there's that dance. 
So if the image works for you, I would invite you to go ahead and use that in the context of uh, sharing, overflowing your compassion to the world around you, to wherever it's needed. And the relationship that you have with your body can tell me a lot uh, as far as how well or smoothly, how easily you can navigate through the Brahma Viharas. I have to add that as well. Meaning uh, oftentimes because of our upbringing, usually in the West, we have uh, this, this more uh, acceptability, shall we say, of concepts, intellectualizing and, and, and taking, holding on to concepts and figuring it out and trying to squeeze it into the body. Like in yoga, for example, in asanas, uh, it's dangerous even when a student looks at a picture and tries to take the asana or the posture, how well it needs to be executed and squeezes it into their body without respecting the limitations of the body, their own body. Meanwhile, it's supposed to be, be the opposite. The asana has to be negotiated. It has to uh, bow down to the confines, to the, to, the, to the ability of the body to embrace it. So can compassion embrace your heart enough so that it overflows, enough so that it no longer has that veil, that curtain, that silver lining, and slowly, slowly it dissipates, it fades away. And all of a sudden you don't see the separation between that, whether it's the six directions or not, whether it is a person or not, it's there already. It's just like the air that passed from your lungs to the air around you. By the way, how is this working so far, these images? I, I like what you're saying. It's still raising another question in me then if I, and from the point of view where you were talking about, we grab hold of that other person and then become one. The image that comes to my mind is then that compassion is a feeling that I'm going to be able to feel that myself and with the overflowing part radiated out in the same way that I do for Meta. And then the question arises, then what exactly is that difference in the feeling between meta and compassion? Because if I'm feeling loving kindness and I'm feeling joy, exactly what's the difference for compassion? Because compassion in my mind involves that having the other person, which is the whole problem with my question in the first place. So are you now able to answer the difference between meta and compassion as just a sensation within myself? I thought you'd never ask <laughs> because <laughs> this actually goes straight into the crux of the matter, which is to control. I want to control. I want to know exactly what's happening, when it's happening and why it's happening, et cetera, et cetera. Because fortunately I have good news for you. It has nothing to do with your understanding as to what is taking place now? How is it going to take place now? When is it going to take place? When is the shift going to happen? When is, let's say, compassion or karuna going to be introduced? 
you and I have no say in this, which is beautiful. Because metta, without you knowing, without asking your permission, without sending you a text or an email, suddenly, without you knowing, or the timing, shifts into karuna, which is simply quite transformative. It's humbling. And without you even knowing what happened, the same thing happens and all of a sudden you have this shift into joy. And this sense of complete permeability between you and everything else. And now mudita is no longer a word that you're struggling to find an English word for. Because no word will actually be uh, as relevant as the experiencing of it. And when we come to Upeka, good luck. There's no words for that. So what this means then is it's an encouragement for you to just sit back and enjoy the ride. Because that is where you're hitting several targets with one arrow, meaning the questions about how do I do this or when is this happening or am I doing this correctly vis-a-vis -vis the other Brahma Viharas, etc. Because all those things, it's like the crab that pulls its, uh, its or especially the turtle that pulls its limbs, its head and its tail in suddenly and we just enjoy the ride. We're just doing that and with less of an interference, less of an involvement. And when we're less involved and less and less and less and less, something magical is discovered. And that is you see that uh, the I that you were talking about, that sense of identification that we need to somehow uproot, eradicate, it's no longer a question. It's like that child who's sitting there with his grandfather waiting for the seed to sprout and grow into a tree. Every millisecond, okay, chop, chop, let's go. Uh, it's not happening. And then grandpa gets him engaged and you know, something else. And all of a sudden they turn around and whoop, there's a sprout. When did that happen, grandpa? Enjoy. And then he turns around, talks about something else. All of a sudden it's bearing fruit. All of a sudden it's a huge tree. It's now big enough to supply food for the whole village, big enough to supply shade for all the animals, homes for all the birds to nest in. So less and less of you take place and more and more of the experiencing of the Dhamma takes place. That's uh, how I understand going to Vakali Sutta when Lord Buddha told him, don't forget, when Vakali was about to die and uh, he asked his attendants to take him to the, uh, to the Black Rock on uh, the Vulture's Peak in India, in Rajgir, where he had initially wanted to commit suicide, where the Buddha had intervened. Years later, he's still not an Arahant, but he's developed quite a bit. Um, and Lord Buddha sees him in his mind. And again, he tells him, 
Just like I said, Vakkali, years ago to you, he who sees me sees the Dhamma. He who sees the Dhamma sees me. And by your practice, you're seeing the proof of the Dhamma. You don't need any explanations anymore. This is where your practice can become a strong, strong um, cementing agent, if you will, to establish you firmly into the faith that gives you the sight, the vision of the Dhamma you, on your own, through your own practice, through your own personal verification. Where if somebody comes to you and talks about compassion, mudita, this and that, and they're very nicely compartmentalized, do a nice PowerPoint on it, etc., etc. You just shake your head. Not, not in a contentious way or try to have an argument with them. No, you're just like, hmm. Because you know better. You, you, you feel, you know, you, you are it. Hence, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Dhamma, the Buddha. And uh, Vakali uh, dies uh, there as an arahant, by the way. Just in case you wanted, some of you wanted closure as what happened to Vakali. But uh, I hope that um, clarified things a little bit better. It was a so great an answer that I'm glad I answered the asked the question. Thank you. <laughs> oh, wonderful, wonderful. I'm, I'm truly glad you asked it. And uh, sometimes we shy away from asking, and or for whatever reason, or we feel like mm, I shouldn't ask, even though. It's relevant to many people, if not all of you, uh, in different stages. So I um, always applaud you um, and anyone who, who comes out because that's how the teachers or anybody could know where you're at. And, and if they have some tools they could share, why not? Because it has to, the Dhamma has to be relevant to you, your practice, where you can go ahead and apply. You have a tool now go ahead into your laboratory and practice. And it's not just once a day, it's not when you are sitting per se, of course, it's every moment. And that's why I stress the importance of watching the mind, not just as a mindfulness practice, but as a practice of virtue to practice, okay, is that thought ethical or is that thought wholesome or not? If somebody wiser than me were to come and, and, and probe my mind, like Buddha says, see my mind with their mind, if they were able to do that, would they look at me with eyes of blame? <laughs> or is that a blameless thought? Because there are beings who have that ability around us and i'm talking about the devas specifically and there are class of uh, classes of devas who can see your thoughts very clearly and that's by the way how uh, the buddha was informed about vakali about to become an arahant by the way that day so they came and they said lord vakali is being taken to uh, the black rock on the in, in rajgir and uh, we have good news because he is about to attain full liberation. So <laughs> they see the mind. So please, please uh, take good care of your thoughts. 
and no, don't do virtue or 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 your um, your sila. I encourage you not to look at it as just oh I shouldn't do it type of a thing. Yes, that is very important for a big chunk of the journey. It requires that kind of a mindset. It has to be firm and rigid, but. Please bring in the consequence of there being fluctuation or perturbance in the mind, confusion in the mind, and a sense of remorse and regret as a result of me having this thought or saying this word that I shouldn't have. And there goes half of my day trying to push it away, push it away, say it never happened justifying it, etc., versus just observing it at the start, meaning the thoughts. And that's where we can take our own uh, personal accountability in our own hands. It's no longer faith. It's no longer, yeah, Bhante or Lord Buddha says, or the teachings always say, three training, sila, samadhi, panya. Yeah, I'm doing the sila. I'm keeping the five precepts. It's more than that. Your life becomes... Uh, uh, consistent bundle of virtue. And that is the transformative quality of the Dhamma. Um, so I hope that helps. Um, if Are there any other questions? Oh. Let me see. Ah. I'm reading the message from Upatissa. Uh, thanks very much for the talk, Bhante, and also to Greg for the food for thought. While Greg brought up the issue of karuna, I recall the aspect of forgiveness. A Russian friend of mine told me once that in his language, the word forgiveness does not exist, and the closest equivalent is acceptance. Hmm, I didn't know that. I also recall that in suttas, when someone asks for pardon for their uh, unwholesomeness, the Buddha always says that it has been accepted instead of forgiven. The acceptance is that is in that sense oneness instead of I forgive you or you forgive me. I hope that makes sense. Yes, it's a thank you for that uh, uh, comment um, and uh, uh, contribution as it relates to. Uh, acceptance in the case of forgiveness. Yes, because when there is that, um, um, that, that approach of I am forgiving you, there is still some type of, uh, you know, I would say, I guess the word comes to mind is, is it's a hierarchy, some status, uh, a difference. And there was another um, equalizer in, in adding on, piggyback, uh, piggybacking off of, of, of what Upatissa was saying, uh, especially in the case of, uh, for example, uh, there were some accusations made unlawfully uh, by certain uh, characters, certain bhikkhus even, against uh, Venerable Sariputta, against Venerable Mahamukkalana, etc. And of course, many times against the Buddha. But the ones that I recall um, is, uh, for example, when the person comes and Lord Buddha says, okay, especially I think we talked about at one point where a bhikkhu comes in and, and, and uh, 
and says to Lord Buddha, oh, Sariputta struck me. And he didn't even apologize. And he took off going to the countryside with his bhikkhus. So Lord Buddha sends another monk to go get Venerable Sariputta to come back because he wasn't you know, that far gone. So he comes back and, and that's where Sariputta uh, gives his uh, lion's roar. Um, I think it was one of the earliest suttas we covered in these series. Uh, but there is, uh, even though we don't see that at the end of the sutta, in other similar uh, encounters, um, well, let me just use the example of, again, Venerable Sariputta, but this time on his deathbed, where he was bleeding profusely because of dysentery, in, in, and he was very old. He was over 80 at that time, and to die, he had... Um, um, gone back to his family home where his old, old mother was living. Um, so if he was 80, mother was probably almost 100. Um, so, uh, so he gives her a Dhamma talk and she was a typical Brahmin, you know, but she breaks the barriers and she becomes a Sotapanna. And he says, your nursing fees are paid so you may go now. He was in pain, he was bleeding when he was giving a Dhamma talk. So he lets uh, the other bhikkhus come. And uh, so, and then at that moment when they are taking care of their teacher, Venerable Sariputta, he, uh, uh, there's, there's a, this, this beautiful protocol that happens. And that involves the uh, the asking for forgiveness in a sense, and um, and that is um, the bhikkhus all uh, will say to each other, um, please forgive me. And at that point, Venerable Sariputta says, if at any point I have done, said, behaved in a way that is um, um, in a pro improper, it was hurtful. It was damaging to you in any way. Um, then please accept my uh, apologies. And so there is that interchange, which completes that transaction. Which I agree with Upatissa calling it acceptance. And so it's not uh, the students coming to the teacher and saying, "Bante, if we've ever harmed you in any way and hurt you in any way, please accept our forgiveness." because the person does not want to have that feeling of regret for the rest of their lives after the teacher's gone. And similarly for the teacher to set them at ease, to release them. Um, and this is a typical uh, verbal uh, protocol or transaction, if you will, but that also happens after a teaching where a bhikkhu is teaching the students um, especially on longer retreats, let's say several days or weeks or months. At the last encounter of that period, uh, the teacher would, uh, the students would come, let's say, you, they usually do anumodana, making dana or whatever offerings. And then they would ask the teacher to forgive them for any kind of 
misdeed or misbehavior. And similarly, the teacher, not every teacher does this, but it, it many teachers do though. Um, uh, and they will go ahead and return that to the student and say, and if I have ever uh, during this period caused any harm, et cetera, in different ways in my behavior, uh, please accept my apology as well. Uh, so that neutralizes it. Um, so, and that's another form of living compassion, living compassion and living, not just compassion, of course, because you don't have metta compassion, forget about it. Because some people think of it as like, okay, I moved out of, you know, this class, 11th grade, now I'm in the 12th grade or, you know, no more a sophomore, I'm not this. That's not, it doesn't work like that. They play into, they grow into each other rather, as I was mentioning earlier to Greg. Um, so compassion comes out of metta. And if your forgiveness doesn't have either of these two, it's not real uh, forgiveness or acceptance for that matter. And that's why I was trying to mention how our relationship with these feelings or even the words depicting these feelings is very important. Some people have a difficulty even with the word love because they never truly felt it from their caretakers, from their parents, let's say, uh, or they were very much abused or when you present them to the word compassion or forgiveness, they immediately feel uneasy because they think or they feel that they're going to be taken advantage of given past relationships. So that's a major hurdle that the person has to unravel by going to themselves and giving themselves before giving anybody else that metta or compassion. That is another reason why I never ever teach any of my students metta by having them do it like you're giving it to a spiritual friend to family and then your enemies in one sitting no 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 the enemies come way 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 out there in the future after you have felt it seen it experienced it you're fully in you know enmeshed in in metta and slowly slowly i have to titrate it's like climatizing like mountaineers they go up one foot or 10 feet and then come back down five feet. And that is how they go up the higher elevation of the Himalayas. So giving love to an enemy is never ever advised. If the teacher knows what they're doing, that is with metta, they will never advise the student to start with giving love to enemies first. Because there needs to be the acceptance within themselves. Uh, whether it's metta, karuna, mudita, uh, or forgiveness. So uh, thank you for that uh, as well, Upatissa. Uh, I don't know if there are any other questions. I guess there aren't any. All right, so let us share some merits. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. 
May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sab, sab, sab. May you all be well. May the triple gems blessings be upon you and your loved ones. And uh, don't forget to take it easy on yourselves. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Whatever happens, just stay on track. Just stay on track. Whatever happens, it's okay. Fine, I see it. Fine, fine. Let's move on ahead with what we got. Let's go. And keeping the mind as calm as possible all throughout. Until next time, which I hope it will be next week. Oh, uh, next week I have been asked to give a Dhamma talk on, <laughs> interestingly enough, how uh, whether we can investigate our teachers. Uh, so um, I found it relevant. That's why, um, given the time period we're living in and, and what I see in the world of Dhamma, especially. So that will be, I don't have the link yet. It won't be on this uh, Zoom uh, channel or platform. It will be via the um, courtesy of the Buddhist Mahavihara of Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. I've given many talks with them in the past, so they've kindly asked me to give another one. Um, so that will be coming up on the, their 17th, which there's several hours ahead of us, uh, Malaysia time, uh, 8 p.m. on on Saturday, their Saturday, I think. Anyhow, I'll ask Dhammadina to send uh, the link once I do have more data as to what it is, etc. I hope you uh, keep practicing and uh, be well. <laughs>